With that, this morning, we will be looking at, the, uh, at Luke chapter 15. So if you would open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 15. If you uh, look at verse 11 and you look right above it, you'll see an italicized title, The Prodigal Son. This is a very well-known parable within the Christian world as well as in the secular world. And this, par- this title, however, only captures half of the parable. The parable begins with a man who had, a man had two sons. But if you have heard sermons before on this passage, they likely have focused on the prodigal son and left the portion about the older son untouched. Why have so many neglected the second half of this parable? Jesus tells us this parable in succession with a couple of others that are a direct response to the Pharisees' grumblings. The chapter begins with many tax collectors and prostitutes and other loose-living men and women who come to Jesus listening to him. And as these sinners come to Jesus, he receives them warmly. He eats with them. But this angers the Pharisees. They don't like that Jesus welcomes tax collectors and sinners when they, the righteous Pharisees, would never do such a thing. Jesus' compassion highlights the hardness of heart of these Pharisees, and they hate it. That's the context needed to understand this parable. And with this in mind, we can learn not only from the prodigal son, but also from the older brother. And today, that's what we're going to focus on, is the older son in this parable. So if you would uh, stand with me, we'll read the parable of the prodigal son. Beginning in verse 11. And he, being Jesus, said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, And no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, He heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, 
You have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost and has been found. The word of the Lord. Would you lift your hands with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for your words that are the words of life. We pray that you would speak to us now through this parable. Give me your spirit and speak powerfully through me. Lord, give us soft and tender hearts and ears to hear as we consider this familiar parable. We love you, Lord. Be with us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In this parable, there are three people. The prodigal, the father, and the older brother. The prodigal demands that his father give him his share of the, of the wealth. And asking this, he's communicating to his father that he doesn't want anything to do with him. Essentially, he tells his father that he wishes he were dead. He's tired of waiting for his father to die to receive his inheritance. He wants it now. That alone would have been enough for the town to be talking about it for days. But this younger son goes even further. He packs up all his things, and he leaves to be far away from his family and to spend all of that wealth on ungodly things. How embarrassing must this have been for the father? Can you imagine the murmurings of the father's failure that would have circulated through the town? As he went to the marketplace, and people motioned and whispered, that's the man whose son took half his wealth and then just left. Or the few neighbors who hadn't heard the news that would ask about his younger son. And then he would have to tell them that he left. And not only that, but he left with half his wealth, spending it on prostitutes and lavish living. The rebellion of this son was known by all. Everyone knew that his father once had two sons. But now as they walked by the fields and they saw one son working, they were reminded of that disgraceful younger brother. But then the younger son comes to his senses. In the midst of feeding pigs more food than he was eating, he remembers his father. He recognizes that his rebellion has brought him nothing but hunger and misery, and he remembers the goodness of his father. He then decides to return, presuming that his father may show him mercy despite his rebellion against him. This son comes back different from when he left. When he set out, he was prideful and arrogant, but he returns humbled, owning his sin before heaven and before his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. What mercy we see in this father. After telling his father he wished he were dead, after squandering half of his wealth, after the public shame that this son subjected his father to, the father recognizes him from a distance and runs to him. He hugs him, he kisses him, and he puts a robe and a ring on him and even sandals on his feet. This son had nothing. Nothing at all. And yet this father, in an instant, has given him everything. He receives him back as a son. He clothes him and then kills the fattened calf and throws him a feast. All for this son who disgraced him. What a beautiful picture this is of how God receives us, isn't it? A picture of how Jesus received those tax collectors and sinners who came to him. But we must not forget the older son. The older son has been with his father nearly all, all of his life. When his younger brother rejected his father and ran off, this son stayed close. When the younger son left, he didn't just disgrace his father either. 
His brother, the older brother, felt the effects of this as well. He also had to hear the murmurings throughout the town, had to answer people when they asked where his brother was. He had to pick up the slack that his younger brother left behind when he ran off. For years, this older brother was with his father, serving him in the fields, working in the heat of the sun, while the younger brother lived lavishly. He served his father and denied himself many of those earthly pleasures that his brother pursued. Now, as you read the scripture, as I'm sure you know, you should be applying it to yourself. When you read a parable of the sower, you should be thinking, which soil am I? Or if you read the parable of the sheep and the goats, you should be asking yourself, which camp do I fall into? And it's the same with this parable. When we read this parable, we must ask ourselves, which brother am I? Some of you, you see yourself in the father. You may have a son that's run off far from home. Or maybe he's still right here in the area, but he wants nothing to do with the things of God. The father's patience and his joy in receiving his son back encourages you and challenges you to pray for your son, to trust God to bring him back. And in this picture is a wonderful picture of fatherhood that we should learn from. But even if you do see yourself in the father, you are also a son. While there is a particular sense in which God is only the father of those who love him, in another sense, he is the father of every man and that he has created each one of you and me. So despite being able to identify with the father in this parable, you should still ask yourself, which son am I? If you're honest, I bet most of you see yourself as the prodigal. You remember years of running from God. You remember the dark emptiness of life where you chased after earthly pleasures and you were left just as hungry as that, that younger brother. You remember that moment when you came to your senses, you saw the folly of your lifestyle you felt the weight of your sin, and you realized your need for your Father in heaven. You too took that humbling walk back to your Father, confessing your sin before him and seeking mercy. And when you asked, you were received. And not only that, but you were given joy and comfort just as the prodigal was given a feast and sandals for his feet. In a sense, every Christian is the prodigal. And though there is a sense, though there is a sense that every, for many of us here that we are the prodigal, we must not forget that this younger son's sin was very public. Sin can sometimes be done so subtly that only God knows. But that wasn't this son. This son's sin was so evident that believers and unbelievers alike could have recognized it. He didn't try to hide it. He lived in open rebellion against his father. But the elder brother wasn't like this. He did not publicly disgrace his father. He never had a stage of open rebellion against him. And he served his father since his youth. He was raised up in the commands, and he knew what his father wanted and what he commanded. Which of these brothers more closely resembles your life with God the Father? Have you lived in open rebellion against God for all to see? Or have you lived a life more like that of the elder brother? never living in a way that showed outright rebellion against God. For some of us here, we don't like that thought. If we're more like the elder brother, then that means we're more like the Pharisees. And though, like many of us, they didn't live in outward rebellion, we think they're still far different from us, right? 
No one here is like a Pharisee, not within these walls at Christ the Word. Pharisees are always out there, never in here, or even possibly in here. Or so we think. We like to manufacture caricatures of the Pharisees so we can keep them at an arm's distance. We look at the, the son's response to the father when he says, I've never neglected a command of yours. We say, that's the Pharisees. They thought they were perfect. They went around trumpeting how others' sins were sinful, or how others were sinful and we, they were perfect. And then we ease our own conscience by acknowledging we know we're not perfect. And as long as we know that, we could never be a Pharisee. But the Pharisees didn't think that they were without sin. They knew they sinned. That's why they went to the temples and, commit, and did the sacrifices. Or maybe we keep them far off by viewing them as charlatans, as men that were fully aware that they were putting on a show. We think that they knew they hated God, but they just pretended to serve him. But since we are earnestly trying to serve God, we could never be a Pharisee. But the Pharisees were convinced that they were serving God as well. When the scriptures say they made a show of fasting and praying, they weren't making a show trying to cover up that their, farts, their, that their hearts were far from them. That's not why they made a show of their righteousness. They made a show to boast of their nearness to God before men. They thought they were serving God well, and they wanted to flaunt it. Their hearts may have been far from them, but in their minds, they were with God. Or perhaps we think that we're so different from them because they cried, crucify, crucify. And we know intellectually, yeah, it was our sin that, that, that hung Christ on the cross. But we imagine we would have been more like those many townspeople who came to hear Jesus preach and eventually they believed. In whatever ways we reason it, we don't like to consider whether or not we are like the Pharisees or that we could potentially be the elder brother in this parable. That's why the second half of this parable is so often left out. Captured by the graciousness of God shown in the prodigal, we don't like to then look at the warning of the elder brother. But if we miss that warning, we leave ourselves unguarded against a deadly error. Now let's take a moment to consider what the Pharisees were really like. The Pharisees had a reputation of serving God. They were raised in the law of God and they learned right and wrong on the basis of the scriptures. They were expected to live according to the standards of the Bible and they were pushed to memorize it, to store it up in their minds. Not only did they know the word, but they also took it seriously. They fasted, they kept the Sabbath, they were in the temple. They would have been regular church attendees. Though they saw many prodigals, they didn't run off into those same outward acts of rebellion as the tax collectors and the sinners. The Pharisees were also viewed as religious. It was not just themselves who thought that they were near to God. Others did as well. They spoke about God to others. They made sacrifices. They prayed. And people saw them do these things. Think about yourself. Is this similar to your upbringing? Is this how your friends and family view you? Do they see you pray before meals and hear you speak about God? Now, we must clarify that obedience to God is good. Being trained in the word, fasting, praying, having a reputation of one that is near to God, all of these things are good things. But this external obedience of the Pharisees, we know, did not save them. Many who cleaned the outside of the cup also schemed to put Jesus on the cross 
and then perished for their sins. The reason they perished, however, was not that the Pharisees, not because they were keeping the outside of the cup clean. They were not condemned for the many things that they were doing right or for the sins that they kept themselves from. Remember remember that not every Pharisee was condemned either. The Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he came to believe, he obeyed all the more. He says he disciplined his body and made it his slave. So after he had preached to others, he himself would not be disqualified. Well, recall the Pharisee Nicodemus. At the beginning of John, we read of this man who comes fearfully in the night to talk to Christ. But by the end of this book, we read that this man helps take down the body of Christ from the cross, bringing with him 100 pounds of aloe and myrrh for the body of his Lord. We must understand that similarity to the Pharisees does not automatically bring condemnation. The Pharisees were not condemned for their external obedience. They were condemned because despite doing many of the right things, they had the heart of the older brother in this parable. Now let us consider the warning of the older brother. He was born and raised in his father's house. And like we said, he never left, even when his younger brother ran after the world. We read that the older brother was coming in from the field when he heard that rejoicing. We can be sure he was out in that field working, one of the last ones out there. This son not only served his father for many years, but he worked for him diligently. Just as with the Pharisees, there are many good things about this brother. But his glaring error is that he doesn't rejoice with his brother who is dead, that has now come to life. And here is where it can be easy to distance ourselves again from the brother. Because how many of you have ever gotten angry as you watched a man or woman come to faith? I suspect not many. I'm sure those of you who were here at times in our church's history, when men who were excommunicated came back and were received back into the church, I'm sure there wasn't, wasn't a single heart in the room that wasn't rejoicing. But the brother's failure to rejoice is only a symptom of a deeper issue. And the words of this older brother reveal what that issue truly is. He says, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The older brother thought he deserved something for his worth. He looked at his life and then he looked at the life of his younger brother And he determined that if this prodigal brother was given a celebration for merely returning to his father, then he deserves something for all of his years of service. What ignorance of this this older brother who already possessed everything that the father owned and had never been without it. The father says, son, you have always been with me. All that is mine is yours. The son had been with his father all of his days. He had access to all that his father owned and all he had to do was ask. But when this prodigal son returns and is given just a fraction of what that older brother already has, the older son gets angry that he has not been given everything, anything. And this is a reflection that's aimed right back at the Pharisees. Through the older brother, Jesus shows the Pharisees themselves. They've been with God all of their lives. The Pharisees have the law and the prophets, and their external obedience has kept them 
free from many of those external sins. And yet they blindly miss all of these undeserved blessings that God has already given them. And they think, they demand that they deserve even more. Jesus exposes a fundamental error in the Pharisees' service to God. Though they serve him in many ways, they think God owes them for their service. It's true that many rewards are promised to believers for obedience in Scripture. And so we can expect that God will bless our obedience. But there is a vast difference between expecting a reward for obedience on the basis that God promises it and believing that our act of obedience itself merits God to pay us something in return. The Pharisees viewed their obedience as transactional. They obeyed, and now God is obligated to give them something in return. Elsewhere, Jesus tells this parable. Which of you, having a slave, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat? And afterward, then you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which he was commanded, does he? So you too, when you have done all the things which are commanded you, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Our, filthy, our works are filthy rags when compared with the righteousness of God. In every act of obedience, we fall short of that standard. Even if we were to keep the law perfectly in one meager work, we would still have only done that which was commanded of us. And God would not be obligated to give us anything in return. But God does give us his spirit to help us obey. And though that obedience is always muddled with sin, he rewards us on the basis of his promises. But even as we obey <clears throat> in the spirit and expect reward from God, we must simultaneously hold, in the other hand, that knowledge of our, of our unworthiness as slaves before God. We must not think that God owes us anything. But these Pharisees did not think they were unworthy slaves. They thought that by their good deeds and sacrifices, they had become worthy. They looked at the tax collectors and sinners who lived far more outwardly sinful lives than themselves, and they distanced, them, distanced themselves from them because they thought they had earned a higher status for their obedience. Like the older son, they believed their obedience merited them something. And it's at this fundamental point that Jesus condemns the Pharisees. And it's against this entitled mentality that we must be on guard. We don't like to think that we could ever fall into the same root error as the Pharisees here. But have you ever thought in this way? God, how could you give that person a promotion? He's divorced. He has a kid with three different women. He's vulgar. How could you exalt him over me? I've served you. God, why have you given me such poor health? Why is it that this man who's drank all his life, smokes a pack a day, rarely goes to the doctor, has no health problems, and I'm here with three doctor's appointments a week? I know my body's a temple. I've treated it in that way. God, why haven't you given me a baby? I've been praying. I've obeyed you. I'm confessing my sin. I'm loving my husband. And yet you gave a baby to my cousin who had a one-night stand? 
Or how many of you college men have tried to convince yourself that you're content with singleness, thinking that once you've reached that point, then God will give you a wife? When we think in this way, with the expectation that God owes us, it reveals two things. We don't know our sin, and we have forgotten God's goodness to us. The main difference between the prodigal and his brother is not their vastly different lifestyles. In the end, the most prominent difference is their view of themselves and of their father. One brother, though he looked the part, thought himself righteous. He thought he deserved something from his father. The other brother, however, though he rejected his father outright, was humbled and saw that he had sinned and was unworthy of being his father's son. One son, in thinking he deserved something, overlooked all that was already his. The other son, knowing he deserved nothing, saw his need for his father's goodness. Both of these sons presumed upon the father. But one presumed that he was owed for his obedience, while the other presumed that his father would be merciful to him despite his disobedience. If you know God, then you know your sinfulness. You know that God owes you nothing but damnation. And when you understand that, you can't help but give praise to God who has graciously given you everything. The Pharisees weren't vigilant of their sin because they thought they had conquered it. They thought they had it handled. But we know that only one man has conquered sin, and that man is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the man that real sinners cling to. You admit you're sinful? Great. So did the Pharisees when they offered their sacrifices. But do you see your sin and take it so seriously that you have no other hope for dealing with it other than hoping in Jesus Christ himself? Does your sin drive you to have more and more confidence in a good God who receives sinners? That's the difference between the Pharisees and the sinners. The Pharisees sinned and they turned to their external sacrifices that could never cleanse the heart. But the sinners clung to Christ and they hoped in God to change them. Jesus did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. How do you view your sin? Do you confess your sin? Do you spend more time confessing your sin to God or looking at others to make yourself feel good about your good works? Do you confess your sin any other time of the week than when you're here on a Sunday morning on your knees? Do you think like the elder brother, looking at your many years of service and your obedience to many of God's commands? Or do you view yourself as the prodigal, as a sinner before men and before God, unworthy of being called his son? It's those who know themselves as sinners who are protected from Phariseeism. It's those who know themselves as sinners who recognize the goodness of God. And it's those who know themselves as sinners who rejoice over the salvation of tax collectors and prostitutes. Because a sinner sees himself in the tax collector and the prostitute, while the Pharisee beats his breast and says, Thank you, God, that I'm not like that man. Despite whether you have borne your sin on your sleeve or whether you've kept the outside clean, much more like the Pharisee, all men have sinned enough to say with Paul, I am the chief of sinners. 
And you may say it with your mouth, but until you know it in your heart, you will be no different from the Pharisees. Heed the warning of the older brother. If you're more like the prodigal, do not forget what God has dragged you out of. Over time, even those who once were true prodigals can become in danger of being like this older brother. If you're more like this older brother, do not think that your many years of service obligates God to give you anything. Do not think that because you've kept yourself unstained in many regards that God owes you now what you want. He will reward you for your obedience. But you must remember it is an undeserved blessing. If you're more like the older brother, ask God to reveal your sin and to keep you from thinking highly of yourself. This will keep you free from thinking you deserve anything as well as keep you grateful for the goodness of God that he has shown you. Both you and the prodigal are deserving of the same end. And yet God in his goodness has chosen, chosen to save you, both you, whether you are the prodigal or you, whether you are raised in the church all your life, he's chosen to save both of you alike, though you both deserve the same end. And so hope in the mercy of God and remember, remember that we are unworthy slaves and yet God gives us great reward for obedience based on his promises and not on what we do. Let us pray. God, thank you that your word does not return void. Would your spirit take the seeds and plant it and bear fruit in each and every one of our lives? Give us tender hearts, Lord, that we would know our sin, that we would be constantly reminded of our unworthiness before you and yet encouraged by your goodness to give us reward as we obey. Help us, Lord, to cling to you and to nothing else. You are our righteousness and you are the God who saves sinners. Though we are unworthy, Save us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.